0: We are beginning a series here, and I don't know how long we'll go on the series, but we're beginning this tonight. We're going to try to gather a lot of information, but we're not going to do it all at one time. We're going to build on top of uh, each Wednesday, so the concurrent Wednesdays will, will grow in our understanding. I don't want to go too long on a particular subject, but we're going to answer a few questions about the end time there There was a study done of all the great revivals that that had occurred even from the time of Jesus Christ, but mainly um, the resurgence or the great awakening all the way through into Europe and then the inception of the United States and then from the eighteen hundreds and then again, the 1900s, these massive revivals. And the revivals were not subject to a particular denomination. All of them had one thing in common, however. They all began with preachers, teachers, speaking about and presenting the biblical concepts of prophecy. Prophecy is... A very interesting portion of scripture, in fact, about 27% of the Bible's content can be characterized as prophecy. 20 books of it. 20% of the, of the books are, are prophetic. So when you have that much scripture dealing with prophecy, you have to note that it's critical or it's important to God and it's important to people. In some of my dialogue here, I will purposely be redundant so that you will remember what I'm saying. Um, to memorize, you you have to be repetitive. If you want to memorize something, you have to say it over and over again. If you, if you don't know the combination to the lock that you bought, The reason why is because either you haven't written it down, or you forgot where you wrote it, or you forgot the note that told you where you wrote it, and you've also washed your hands, and the ink has rubbed off where you wrote it on your palm. If you would say it over and over again, you will memorize, and in fact, we found out that everyone can memorize, so... So, in fact, you can teach an old dog new tricks. If you're sitting by an old dog, <laughs> just pat them and say, <laughs> don't say anything. Don't do that. Now we're, now we're having trouble already. Uh, everyone can memorize. Just you have to concentrate. You have to repeat repetitive. The repetitive. So it's what sounds redundant actually becomes Gained information. Scientists will tell us that people who create or memorize a bit, a bit, a bit of knowledge, makes a crease in their brain. And, and the more secure that bit of knowledge is, the greater the crease. So if you have a brain that has a bunch of creases or wrinkly, you probably have a lot of knowledge. I've tried to tell my kids, you can... You can like somebody who's pretty on the outside, but make sure their brain is terribly ugly. You don't want a smooth brain date. They don't know nothing. They ain't got nothing to say. We got some work to do. I can tell already in this house. We have work to do. Okay. So you've got this... Scriptures pertaining to prophecy. Twenty-seven percent of the Bible pertains to prophecy. You have entire books dedicated to prophecy, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Why? Why is it so important? Um, I, I did find something I thought was relevant, even to our evening tonight, and I, I want to um, bring his name out. It's been—it's taken me a while to, to get t- to him. His name is William Miller. And he started to preach in the 1800s, the middle of the 1800s, um, that Jesus Christ was coming back in 1843. He had a number of reasons why the Lord was going to return in 1843. But, of course, 1843 rolled around. The Lord did not come back, so he revised his date for the next year, 1844. William Miller, he... Of course, he passed away without ever seeing that happen. In the early 1900s, uh, America was booming in business. An industrial revolution was taking place. Um, Communications were, were growing. You'll hear me say this again. The rate of knowledge was increasing. So in the 1900s, Knowledge was increasing, or we would, in a, in a more technical sense, flipping, which means that whatever was true 100 years ago was obsolete in that 100-year period of time. And so it it moved quickly so that by the middle of the century, it was down to knowledge was increasing every 50 years. And then by the 1970s, it was in the 10s, and the 80s, it was in in this in the more single digits by the time 2000 rolled around knowledge was increasing so rapidly that whatever was on the shelf at the store to buy of course in the in the 2000s you could buy technology at Best Buy or uh, Radio Shack most of those um, those foundational stores have been wiped away by by other online but then the rate of technology was turning over very rapidly whatever you would buy a new product had already made that one obsolete now today the rate of technology is so fast that the I, that the concept of whatever you're holding in your hand can be updated on a monthly basis the rate of technology that means whatever was true last month has been revised this month or whatever was true last year has been obsolete this year uh, such is the case with computers and phones and other types of technology. Even the way that we do angioplasty is is completely different than what it was in 1990 or 1995. The 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 advancements in cancer research and and the procedures of all types of things from from hair implants to the removal of a nail or from the way that we would administer drugs or medicine. All of that has changed, even how we regulate the heart and all the medications that we give from science to earth, water, the human body. Knowledge has increased. In fact, it has exploded in such a way that there's very few levels left to go. In fact, many people feel like we have timed out our intellectual prowess. Now this is a biblical and even prophetic statement that I'm making because the Bible does say that knowledge will increase. It has increased. How are we doing so far? So I have to be careful not to not to just open up the whole box of goodies here because your head and my head will all be swimming. So I kind of want to focus this down to a little bit of of what uh of what William Miller said that Jesus is coming back in 1843 he did not come back in 1843 but a book was written um, in the last century why Jesus is coming back in in 88 1988 he was supposed to return the reason why is because the assumption was made that a generation was 40 years that that we would count a generation as 40 years that was the standard assumption by all the scholars. Even today, some scholars still think that a generation is 40 years. I would refute that through the Bible and through some scientific research. Um, I'm not alone in that, in that rebuttal. Um, this is a very interesting thing. And the reason why is because in Matthew 24 and verse 34, this is not on your handout, by the way. So if you're wanting to fill in a blank, there's no blanks. In fact, this is, this is where you turn your hand out over and you draw little pictures of people while I'm talking because you're bored wondering when is, he's when is going to get the, to the lines. No, this is when you actually make notes in the margin. <laughs> oh, help me, Lord. I found out in Bible study can have no moments of inspiration. Don't ever work off the page. Okay, so I'm not on the page yet, ladies and gentlemen. We're not even on the page. We're just, we're almost to the picture. In fact, we're just, we're not even to the first word eschatology, which if you use in Scrabble, you get a lot of points. So what we had, what we had here was, was this idea that the Lord was going to come back in 1988. There was a book written 88 reasons why the Lord was going to come back in nineteen eighty. People were very afraid. They were scared. And in fact, churches started to flood. In the, in the early 80s, there was a revival of the charismatic church of God, Pentecostal and apostolic uh, churches. All of them started to flood with a lot of people. And part of that was that, um, uh, that fear that the Lord was going to come back and they would be lost. Plus, we had an explosion of, 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 of this new device called dvds i 'm sorry not dvds vhs not v, vHS I had to get my technology right, and you know it was incredible vHS you could have these tapes and you could watch things and and Hollywood was producing different types of films about the end time. It was kind of spooky and um, so Coming from Matthew 24 and 34, Jesus said, I'm telling you this truth, this generation will not pass until all these things happen. So the previous verses, verse 1 through 33, is describing a lot of things. And one of the things it described was the reconstitution of Israel as a nation. Israel became a nation in 1948. Now on a side note, a sidebar, that was the same year that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. I don't think they're It's coincidence that the year in which Israel and Jerusalem celebrated their statehood was the same year that we found the affirmation to the King James Bible. In fact, Isaiah in its complete form, written multiple thousands of years ago, was found in a cave. And that old scroll matched exactly the words we read in English, through translation in English, Uh, In our King James Version Bible that was established in 1611. There will be a quiz after this is over. Please take notes. And so we have this nation exploding. This is is a nation that that has emerged now. There's a huge... um, a war. There's multiple wars. There's a multiple worldwide oppression against the Jewish people. There is a this reconstitution that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 has actually unfolded, and many people thought the Lord was going to come back then. Now it's going to happen. But when this generation was mentioned in, in Matthew 24, all Jewish and Christian scholars said that means a generation. He's coming back. That that's why the book. 88 reasons why the lord's coming back in 1988 was so well accepted it was accepted because everyone assumed a generation was 40 years and everyone marked the date 1948 plus 40 years as 1988 and this was a major push it was a prophetic word and churches started to grow and people started to come back to god and some were frightened inside some thought i got to get right with god and of course, this has happened throughout the times in fact in fact when we when we look back at William Miller, people were also wanting to go to those uh harbor type churches and tent revivals and and they were building uh buildings for worship, knowing that the Lord was going to come back they They all gathered around in fact, it was a catalyst for a lot of church buildings in the late eighteen hundreds and of course we found out that the Lord did not come back in 1988 and that date was revised several times until they ran out of dates in the mid-1990s. But of course, at the turn of the century, we had Y2K and Y2K was also a fear that all the computers were going to shut down. They were not built to uh, to house the data uh, transfer from 1999, December 31st, to January 1st 2000 and so everyone was afraid people actually were trying to take money out of their banks and they did so in mass numbers they were buying generators and canned beans and canned goods and water and water bottles and jugs and basements were stored with this stuff which I'm assuming right now has either been sold at a yard sale (laughs) or you can get it kind of cheap to somebody people thought this was going to happen But they kind of lost sight of the scripture because you need to go to the Bible. I don't know if the, I don't know if the sound folks can do this on the fly, but Psalm chapter 90 is going to give us an indication what a generation is because the days of your life are measured this way. Now, not everybody lives this long and some people live longer, which we're thankful for. Modern medicine has allowed us to do that. Psalm chapter 90. And if you have, if you want to write it down, you can write down Psalm chapter 90, verse 10. Because this is the date, this is the time of a generation. A generation is the days of your life. Not 40 years. So could you give that to me please? The days of our years. Well, okay, I'll I'll quote it to you. The days of your years would mark seven score or 70 or if by chance 80. 80. So a generation would not be 40 years, it would be 70 or 80 years. That is the biblical concept of a generation. Because the Bible never uh, described a generation as 40 years. 40 years came from a multiplicity of kings who served for 40 years. That because many of the kings served for 40 years, that this was the assumption of 40 years. But a generation is 70 or 80 years. That is the mark or the time of 70 years. Now, let's go back to Matthew chapter 24 with the reconstitution, the reestablishment of Israel as a nation. Had those men, scholars, Jewish and Christian scholars alike, had added the numbers of a real generation. And through our study of eschatology, which we're going to about to open up, when we look at this, we're going to find something that that could actually ignite something inside of your life to propel you or even to provoke you to be right with God. Now, I'll make a big statement here. It'll probably, go, it'll probably go untouched. But I'll make a big statement and I won't even unpack it. If there was ever a time in world history for you to be right with God, right now is the time. If there was ever a time for your heart to be clean, pure, holy, consecrated, commitment, and dedicated to God, right now is the time. Okay. I know you believe that, but I've got to move on from it, although I don't want to. All right, how are we doing? Are we we okay? Do you want me to get to the lesson yet? We're not going to yet. Let's stay, let's stay right here in Psalm 90. Because this is very interesting. Because we know that the pivot point of the world happened when Israel became a nation. Because this was the prophetic word that Israel would come back. That Jerusalem would be united. In fact, even in this last calendar year, for the first time in world history, since the modernized world began. I shouldn't say world history, but the first time in modernized history, from the days of David, Jerusalem, for the first time, has been recognized as the capital of Israel. This, this has somehow slipped through our fingers as, as trivial, when I will tell you, it's not trivial. It is one of the most critical moments in our modern-day prophetic realm. And all of our presidents, dating back many, many generations now—I'm sorry, many uh, administrations now—have all wanted to to make Jerusalem the capital and bring the embassy to to Jerusalem. All of them, uh, uh, from from even uh, talks of when Jimmy Carter was in, and then Ronald Reagan and George H. Bush, and then. Uh, President Clinton and President Bush, uh, the W. President Bush, and then, and then President Obama, and then President Trump. Now, all of them have made similar statements. And then finally, right now, there is a, an embassy and a recognized... This is critical for us because it ties us into prophecy. And I'll show you where it ties us in. It's very important because there's a wing. There's an engel 's wing that's going to cover Israel for a time. And we are the eagle's wing. Now I'm not going to get there yet. But I just want you to know. You're living in the last, very last day of time. And the prophetic word has been so fulfilled in our time. And if we ever get a hold of it. If we ever believe it. It'll provoke us to do something different than what we're doing right now. I promise you. It'll provoke you to do something different. So. Here is the generation. 70 years and I do declare that Matthew chapter 24 is critical. 70 plus 1948 is 2018. Or 80 years is 2028. I would just submit to you that we are living in a very critical time. And I don't know if the Lord's going to come back within the next 10 years. But if all those scholars hung their hat on those dates... Believing that a generation was 40 years. I'm, to de- I'm here to declare Psalm chapter 90, verse 10, that a generation is 70 or 80 years, and the Lord could very well come back. There's other evidence to note that he couldn't have come back in 1988 because now we have the establishment of many other things that, that 1988 did not have, but we have them today. Ooh. So we have a lot to study. We want to talk about the rapture, the second coming, the tribulation, the millennial reign, what we will know as the millennial kingdom and the regathering of nations. We, we're we're looking into all of that. So now finally, after 25 minutes, 28 minutes, but you know, they were singing part of that time. It's not my fault. I'm on your page. I wonder why people would not want to know the end times or not see the end time. I've written there and I'm sure maybe you've perused through it now but consider the second paragraph of the Lord's parable of the ten virgins. Uh, the interpretive significance will not be offered here. We're not going to speak of, of that interpretive significance which would be either the rapture of the church or Or the setup to the millennial kingdom. We're going to talk about that. In fact, if you'll just stay with me. I'll break this down in very simplistic terms. And give you a chart for you to see. This is the the beginning of of the catching away. This is the the beginning then of the second coming. We're going to look at where, where the tribulation is. The two parts of that tribulation. The middle point of the tribulation, which is three and a half years, which the Bible describes in months and also in days. We'll talk about the white throne judgment. Because the white throne judgment is not when the Lord comes back the second time. That's not his second coming. And his second coming is not concurrent with the rapture. So we want to figure out what all those... What all those things are. But when we break it down according to scripture. It's going to be pretty simplistic to see. This kind of teaching was done by my father's late uh, senior pastor Walter Gwynn. And in those days he had large charts that they would hang up on the wall. And people understood prophecy. They understood the Bible. Both Ezekiel, Daniel, the book of Revelation. All of those 27% of, of scripture that attained to prophecy. I would just say this to you even before we begin, that we've been so inundated, Hollywood has dumbed us down in such a way that people are not afraid anymore. In fact, we've seen so many um, videos and movies and DVDs and all kinds of of, of, of uh, media uh, images about about the rapture or the second coming or demonic spirits that... People are really not afraid of demons or angels or of God or the second coming. It's kind of been diluted. In fact, so much has been put out. Uh, and 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 even words like Armageddon. Uh, I was looking up all of the, the biblical terms attributed to movies in Hollywood that has nothing to do with the end time. A movie called Armageddon. It's really about a meteor that's going to hit the earth. Just all, all of these kind of films that have used and Hollywood uses these biblical ideas to inundate you or to dilute the idea of the Lord's coming. And so, here we are in this parable of the ten virgins. If you notice that parable, all of them were sleeping when the bridegroom came. And in context of that, the virgins weren't necessarily brides, but they would attend to the bride, or they would be part of the bridal uh, Uh, gathering. It It would be more of a a processional through the streets. But there was a gate that separated them from the groom. And when the groom came, they all woke up, but five, five of them were prepared and five of them were unprepared. And this is what Jesus said. Two will be working in, in, in the field and one would be left. Two will be here and one will be left. I, I will tell you, this building right here, if the Lord comes back, even this next month or whenever He comes back, there won't be room enough in this building when the Lord comes back. We won't, hopefully none of us will be here, but there won't be room for people to gather. No one will be sitting quietly at a seat. When the Lord comes back, people will be running and screaming. They'll knock down the doors of the church. They'll they'll run and throw themselves on the altar on that day. It'll be a, it'll be a horrible day for many people who know that the Lord has returned. It'll be a day of mass confusion when born again pilots are suddenly raptured from their pilot seat and planes are fly, flying awry. And possibly maybe someone else is another seat. They're panicking because suddenly someone has disappeared. We're People are working in a factory and a number of them are gone. Maybe just their clothes lying on the floor emptied as if they have shrunken and fallen off of their bodies. This this idea that the Lord would come back and the trumpet would sound. We do not know that everyone will hear the sound of the trumpet. But the elect of God, those that are saved, will hear the sound. And the trumpet will sound and the, the dead in Christ will rise. And we're not even sure but it, it appears... That if it happened like it happened when Jesus died, graves opened up when he died. Did you know that? That when Jesus died, not only was the veil rent from top to bottom, not only was there darkness and was there, was, there a, was there a shadow over the face of the earth, but people that had been dead got out of their graves, pushed back the stones, opened up the graves and walked around Jerusalem. And people saw their dead loved ones brought back to life. They opened up the earth. They opened up those graves. They opened up whatever casket or tombs they had. It could be, if the Bible would describe it in sync or transitional concepts, which which all scholars assume somehow graves will open up and tombs and caskets that have been sealed and the vaults that are made of concrete stone. They will not be able to withhold the dead saints. They will get up out of that ground and they will be raptured in the sky and they will meet the Lord in the air and then we which are alive will be caught up together with Him to meet the Lord in the air. That is the catching away. I would submit to you that the word rapture is not found in the Bible. But the word is catching away. We can assume the word rapture. But the word rapture is not found in the Bible. It is the catching. Everyone say catching. It's the catching. God's going to catch us away. Can you imagine that great day of the Lord when it comes? That great and terrible day of the Lord when it comes. There will be a massive confusion over the face of the earth the sea will give up the dead those that have been cremated their bodies will come back together from ash into bone and then they will have a glorified body i i stand here to tell you that when the lord returns the world will be thrown into mass chaos and the churches will be filled with those who had knowledge of the lord and were not prepared So, why would we study this? Well, I'm giving you the reason why we would study it. We need to know eschatology. We need to know what that is. So, just on your paper, eschatology is the study of the Bible's prophecy. It's the study of end times as described by the scripture. And so, we're answering a few questions. When is the end of days? I've just described to you what a length of a generation is. That 70 or 80 Psalm you can write there, Psalm chapter 90, verse 10. What are the signs given that describe the last days of time? We're going to study this here if we can get to it tonight. What are the main books that deal with the end-time prophecy? I'll talk to you about that post, pre-, mid-, post-tribulation. How do, how do we decipher? Who is the Antichrist? When and what is the white throne judgment? So in that answering, we're also doing other things. The Bible's timeline, the rapture, the millennial reign, Daniel's animals as modern day countries, the lion, bear, leopard. Why Why are those images? Why did he see those images and what do they mean? The different views of hell. There are three different views of hell. I'm going to, over the next little while, I don't know how long, we'll get to the three different views of hell. The length of the great tribulation and when it will begin. Eschatology, that biblical prophecy, it deals with a part of theology. This is not all of the Bible, ladies and gentlemen. It's not all of the scripture. And, and if I pause tonight, I would tell you that prophecy was not always about foretelling doom. In fact, the prophets did many things besides foretell doom. They did talk about impending judgment, but prophets also uh, called the people to social reform. They spoke of the coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, just in front of me, I, I don't have all of them, but I have 45 messianic prophecies. It's incredible how Genesis 3.15 and, and Galatians 4.4 4 are so fitly woven together. Uh, prophets were statesmen, they were reformers, they were watchmen. Some of them were comforters and encouragers. So not every prophet was someone who came and prophesied doom some of them were comforters in fact the prophet nahum his his name nahum n a h u m nahum his name means comfort or consolation so there's various roles for prophets and there's various tasks for prophets and prophecy was in line with the prophets the prophecy is actually something that was that was given by god so A prophet was actually speaking on behalf of God. Can you imagine? The first prophecy of the Bible was Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. That's the first prophecy. It's it's about a deliverer coming to crush the head of the serpent. And this amazing prophecy is going to take place. But it happened at the beginning of time. It happened right there. This very important prophecy. The first prophecy was of course... About Jesus Christ. So we're into our study in this part of theology that concerns, uh, that, that concerns eschatology. It also concerns with death, judgment, and the final destiny. Everyone say destiny. That's the key, the destiny of the soul and, and of humankind. Now I'm, not, I'm going to give some large macro thoughts here. Uh, and if, and if, Brother Dan, if you have one more of those handouts, I'll take it. Because I, I'd like to follow along and make sure I'm with everybody as they're filling in uh, the answers. Our two general statements are macro statements of Jesus Christ concerning the end of time. And they've got to be put into context. He's speaking, and some of this language, it's, it's, it's toward the end of his death. Some of it's around 32 33 AD, so I'm just giving you a general idea of when the Lord is is speaking. But he's speaking about a present 21st century church. Just to note, the scripture is never contradictory, rather it's always complementary. You have to understand the scripture to know. So these two main scriptures I'm going to present tonight, uh, so that we can have a macro view or a large view of. Kind of an aerial view, as if you're in a plane looking down on a city. You're not going to know or see all the roads, but you're going to see the outline of the city. Matthew 24, Jesus speaks, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day... Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So that's a large statement of the Lord. Here is something he's describing when the Lord's coming back. Then he says again, uh, of course, this is earlier in the book. He says to the Pharisees and these religious people who, who are always inquiring of him, he says to them, when it is evening, you say, look, it's going to be fair weather. The sky is red in the morning. Of course, I don't want to go through the prism, but the sky being red is a, is a, is a, it's a sun phenomenon cast on the, on the sky. Do you want to do that too? We can do all the subjects of of high school here today if you want. Okay. So anyway, so uh, that means the weather is going to be clear um, because it is uh, the, the 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 red is going to indicate multiple multiple miles, maybe over a hundred miles of, of 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 predictability. In the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. And so now we're looking at lowering. Lowering means clouds. Lowering would be low hanging clouds. So other versions or interpretations of scriptures would 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 describe that as. As the sky has now filled with clouds. Oh, ye hypocrites, you can discern the fates of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. So here are your two macro views of the signs one, as in the days of Noah, two, the prediction of weather. And the weather is important because the Lord is going to use the weather as their ability to see something. So let's just go through the aspects of Noah, the days in which he lived. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but no one else did. One of the first and most notable days of, of Noah that's described in the Bible is that of normalcy. Normalcy. It's the unaware of the coming end. If you want to write to the side of that, write this: these two words, normalcy bias, B-I-A-S, write normalcy bias, and then write over that Poland, slash Poland, the country. Hitler had been killing many, many people, and in fact, he had even invaded Poland. But the people were struck. Three hundred thousand people could have gotten out, but only only one third actually fled because of normalcy bias. Normalcy bias says everything will return to normal in time. It's a bias that thinks that this will not last forever. But of course, it was to their destruction. Because Hitler did kill many of them, thousands upon thousands, enslaved them. They died. And in the days of Noah, there's normalcy. They're going about life. They're unaware of the coming in. They don't even know, as Jesus said, they don't even really know what's happening until the day it happened. In fact, until it swept them away, Jesus said. Until it carried them away. They didn't even know what was going on. Until the flood came. Just took them away. Had no idea. All of a sudden, the sky is open. Think of that moment. The earth. It's, it's an incredible day. In fact, the, it was too late. And then Noah's ark was already built. The door was closed. God closed the door. And who knows, if God closes the door, no one can open it. And if he opens the door, no one can shut it. The waters rose from beneath. Springs burst forth like they had been building up. Like geysers exploding all over the earth. And then from above, some Christian scientist uh, would submit that the earth was surrounded by a, blanketed by a massive cloud. That it finally fell. And that that was one of the reasons why mankind lived so long, the the sun rays did not pierce through the clouds like they do today there was, there was uh, there's 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 uh, some scientific evidence that that cloudy days actually uh, contains uh, allows the skin uh, not to be parched or burned and and those rays are held at bay that now today that the sun has not only good effects but adverse effects on the human body, and that now all of this ground is going to be usurped by the water that lays beneath that's going to just consume it. And no one even knows. The earth shook so violently that, that, that we do know, even from the tectonic plates of the earth, that they have shifted, broken apart, that if you take all the landmass of the earth, it fits very well together like a puzzle. And many have evaluated that there was, at the beginning, one landmass at that point in time. How are we doing? Listen, I'm going to throw in a little geography Uh, uh, a little chemistry now and then we have to have some mathematics it's okay I'm enjoying myself just look at me like that and I'll just keep on going listen I I, I don't know I don't know if we're going to be a lively church but we ain't going to be dumb that's for sure we won't all right In the the days of Noah, there's an absence of God. God is absent. Noah was preaching, but God is absent. As in the days of Noah, God is absent. He's removed. Um, Many of the European countries have have removed God. In fact, even the name of Jesus is is not well known today. Noah is preaching. But he's dismissed. He's ignored. Here's conveniences and modernization. Now you think that we have conveniences and they didn't. But they did have conveniences. Do you know that probably a lot of the knowledge, world knowledge, were lost? (laughs) When Rome or Nero or whoever was blamed for it burned the libraries of Alexandria. Much of the world knowledge was lost. Even before... The flood, they understood the cube and square roots. We even have a tough time wondering how to erect a pyramid with primitive wood, iron, and ropes to put these massive multi-tonnage boulders on top of one another. We have this idea because we're technologically savvy and we have control of wavelengths and micro-concepts of of materials that we know more than our ancestors, but really they had a lot of medicines that we are still struggling to recuperate, maybe find today. That some of those primitive places in Egypt have discovered, we've discovered incredible things that have lasted all of this time. Coffee. And honey. And all kinds of, uh, of, of medicines and flowers that have been dried inside of those caverns. So I would just tell you, in the days of Noah, there were conveniences. They might not have had air conditioning, but they had other conveniences and they had modernization. There's also an absence of repentance, of course. Without God, there's no repentance. Without repentance, there's carnality. Number five, human knowledge and creation. So just so you know, you're made in the image of God and you have knowledge and you can create. You create with your words, you create with your mind, you create with your body, your hands, the actions of your life. Knowledge, there's human knowledge, they were growing in knowledge. Number six, the pursuit of profit, family and progress. These are the same attributes that are resonant today. Finally, marriage and divorce. There's marriage and divorce. There's a lot of marital things and divorce that are, that even now are taking place. So this day to day living was occurring. This was the old world, but they had grown in knowledge and invention. They, they should have been weeping and repenting. There was preaching, but there was no adherence to God. And so in the days of Noah, normalcy, and absence of God, conveniences, no repentance, knowledge had increased. They, they, They pursued profit, family, progress. There was marriages and divorces. There was all these kind of things happening. Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. And then the second big, large, broad, macro statement of Jesus happens in... In the analogy of weather predictions. He's going to use the weather. So there's a few things. I I just list four. And I'm sure I've not exhausted all of them. But there's a predetermined outcome. Based on physical features. Which means. We should know. From the physical land and environment. That the Lord is coming back. I'll give you a couple case in points. Earthquakes. The. The seasons, um, the dilution of seasons from physical features of the earth. Number two, patterns based on history. He was pointing this, you know the weather prediction because there are patterns based on history. When the sky has lowering clouds, you know it's going to rain. I mean, we have a farmer's almanac now Almanac now that... that is very good at predicting weather. How? Because it's patterns based on history. They understand what's happening. Even in, even in the animal kingdom, the insect kingdom, from a caterpillar to the amount of, of of hair or wool, even of fur grown on certain animals, gives a prediction of the coming winter or of the spring. Or if you like tawny fill. You can have that too. I don't know if he matters. But you are a hard crowd, I tell you. I don't know where where you're at. I don't know. Maybe I'm just out of here, I will sign I will hold up a sign. Just kidding. Don't write that down, Bunks Tony Phil won't write that down. So you have this. Pattern based on history they should have known. We should know. Ladies and gentlemen, we should know. We have all of these signs. We have two major world wars. We have the League of Nations that was built and then defunct and turned into the United Nations. We have the establishment of Israel. Even this last year, Jerusalem. This year, rather. This year, a a brand new recognition which all the other security council denied. Except the United States. It's incredible. It's phenomenal what's happening here today. Number three, a discernment we should know. They should have known a discernment through a multiplicity of signs, not one sign. So one sign in itself is is insufficient. You see, there could be a lot of earthquakes registered. But earthquakes alone do not suffice. They don't complete the desired definition of the Lord's return. Rather, the cumulative signs in the earth and sky... Governments, wars, rumors of wars, relationships, the breakdown of homes, children, family, economy, all of that. When it all gets into play, then we start seeing this happen. And finally, the need for spiritual insight is not required. No one has to be has to be spiritual to know the signs of the time. Jesus even said it. You Pharisees, which he called Men full of dead man's bones. whited sepulchers. He called them snakes and serpents. He knew they weren't spiritual. But he said you should still know the signs of the times. In fact, he even said. Search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have life. And they are they which testify of me. They looked right past him. Through him. Didn't even see who he was. So. We're going to look at the signs. What is out there? Let's talk about the wars. The rumors of wars. Let's talk about the build-up. Let's talk about one world government. A one world jury. A one world law. A one world currency. Let's talk about the pushback. Of all things that are current and to come. Maybe when we start to discuss prophecy. We'll realize how careful we have to be with our own walk with God. And I hasten. So. So. So I'm giving you. I think are you on Are you on page three now? So I'm giving you this definition because I'm going to refer to it throughout our study. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the day of judgment. There's there's also other words for this, but I I, I wanted to make sure that there was supporting uh, documentation, biblical docu- documentation. And you can look through this on Isaiah, a couple chapters there, and Ezekiel talks about it. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah. Even in the, even in the preaching of, of, of Peter, he's going to reach back to the, to the book of Joel. But this is an interesting thing that he says, The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. So the great and notable day, he says. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says... Now this is in context of a different conversation, but I just wanted to point this out. To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of their flesh, there were people who were so disobedient that they turned them over to, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, which is another study, and it's, it's, a, it's a very intricate study, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Of course, that particular study is riding on the concept that it'd be better for you to lose a limb, an arm, an eye, and be saved than to go to hell whole. There's other New Testament scriptures in 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, Peter, Revelation. The day of the Lord is the day of judgment. The day of the Lord is also referred to as that great and terrible day of the Lord. Paul referred to it, uh, to the times before the, before the day of the Lord as perilous or dangerous times. In fact, I'm, I've listed all of these attributes of the perilous or dangerous times so that we could, we could see it tonight. So we're going to we're going to end up right here on perilous times. How do we know the Lord's coming back? So it's going to be in the earth and the sky. It's going to be the earth and the sky. It's going to be in the animal kingdom, it's going to be in the elements when the Lord is going to come back. He is going to come back. In fact, when he comes back, he's going to come back like a thief in the night. The Bible says he's coming as a thief in the night. You, you won't, you won't beep. you can't predict the exact moment. It's a blink of an eye. Just blink your eyes real quick. That's, that's it. You'll blink your eye and the moment the flutter of your eyelash disconnects from its lower half, he will have come and people will be gone. You know what, what disturbs me about this is that In our songs and our preaching, our dialogue and our teaching, we used to talk about the Lord's return. But people are not ready for the Lord's return. Because we are living in the days of normalcy, of pursuing life and money and getting a job and a career and going somewhere we can better ourselves. We, We make almost no sacrifices to be saved today. In fact, we want someone else to make a sacrifice so that we can enjoy. And we have this idea that God promised us to be happy. And preachers have talked about prosperity. If you do certain things that you should gain, be wealthy, have money, friends, influence. We've actually, uh, we've actually, uh, in, in, in the American pulpits today, you'd be surprised how few preachers actually preach prophecy. And in fact, when I get together, and it's very infrequent, but when I get together with other preachers around town at dinners, and sometimes they have lunches, and I missed the one today or yesterday, whenever it was, I just asked little probing questions. Do you, do you in your denomination teach or preach about prophecy? Very few people preach about prophecy because it's not palatable to the American audience. People don't want to hear about that. It's either too scary for them or they think it's too lofty or they think all they have to do is be a good person and they wouldn't have to worry about it. I'm not submitting that you'd worry about it, but I would say to you, you should make your calling and election sure. I don't think that I want to preach at a church where I never talk about the Lord's coming back. In fact, I want everyone to be prepared and ready. I'm not, I'm not content to have a whole bunch of people in the church and only 5% of them are ready for the rapture. I'm thinking that numbers really don't matter, but totality or wholeness really does matter. And I, I, I really believe that if we're not careful... We'll dismiss that great and terrible day of the Lord and think that it's just a movie, some something that maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger starred in. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So here we are, we're we're just kind of We're kind of looking at these elements. These are these are still large elements that cover all generations. So they so they're not just concentrated on this particular one but but they do attain to that uh, that idea that we are living in this day so paul said know this that in the last days perilous times shall come for men will be lovers of their own selves covetous boasters proud blasphemers disobedient to parents unthankful unholy without natural affection truce breakers false accusers incontinent fierce despisers of those that are good Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. They'll have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Turn away from them. For of this sort are they which creep into houses, lead captives, silly women, laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, of course they were swallowed up by the earth. So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. For they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lister, which persecutions I endured. But out of them all the Lord, out of them all the Lord delivered me, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Uh-oh. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And I wanted to end with that verse 13 because you have to remember, people will be deceived. So before you start writing, let me go to the amplified version because I think we need to read it again. Understand this in the last days. This is not on your page. Dangerous times are going to come. Great stress, great trouble, difficulty. People will love themselves. They'll love money, greed, boastful, arrogant, revilers. Did you know that there's a difference between a reviler and a backslider? (laughs) No. Oh, man. I can really get sidetracked. Yeah, a backslider has lost faith and have sinned. A reviler has left the truth and has mocked the holy things of God and have turned back. They're two different people, but they're both lost. I'd much rather deal with a backslider than a reviler. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. A reviler speaks against the church. A reviler speaks against the holy things of God. A reviler denounces the infilling of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. A reviler mocks holiness. A backslider knows what they've done wrong. They still have some respect, but they're living in sin. You don't want to be either, but a reviler is hard to get back. A backslider can get back, but a reviler has set themselves against all the things that they believe. And the Bible, Paul talked about the reviler when he said it's like a dog returning to its vomit. And when they leave, seven spirits, worse than the first, enter into their body. See how easy it is for me to get off track? Whew, I've got ADD really bad reading the scripture. Irreconcilable, malicious, gossips, devoid of self control, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of sinful pleasures rather than God. They hold a form of godliness. Let me go down to the living Bible. People who love only themselves and their money, they'll be proud, the boastful, sneer at God, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful to them. And thoroughly bad, they will be hard-headed, never giving in to others, or never giving to others. They will be constant liars, troublemakers. They'll think nothing of immorality. They'll be rough, cruel, sneer at those who try to be good. They will betray their friends. They will be hot-headed, puffed up with pride, prefer good times to worshiping the Lord. They will go to church, yes, but they won't really believe anything they hear. Don't be taken by people like that. Here's the last portion of the verse. In fact, verse 13. In fact, evil men and false teachers will become worse and worse, deceiving many. They themselves having been deceived by Satan. This is the last days. Talking about the last times. Perilous times are going to come, ladies and gentlemen. So we're going to fill out our papers just to know, just to denote that we have seen it, heard it, read it. Here's the attributes of people proceeding to that great day. The attributes of people. Number one is self. This is what Paul said. They'll love themselves. People love themselves. I can stand here and tell you that nobody really likes you better than you. Most people love themselves better than anyone ever loved them. This, of course, could be a huge problem. But This is a godlike desire. This is not just someone who takes care of themselves or attends to their hygiene or wants to gain in knowledge or wants to be more proficient in language or wants better writing skills or wants to better themselves. No, we're talking about a godlike desire. Uh, attribute that's akin to Satan's desire to ascend. He wanted to ascend. So self, selfishness is the ascension of the ego or the egocentric man wants to ascend above self. This is the last days. We're living in a, in a day of self. Number two, money. The love of money is a God. Jesus, in fact, said, you'll serve God or money. I just preached about this. God or Money. Money is the opposite of God, not the devil. Because Jesus said, you're going to serve God or mammon. He didn't say God or Satan. God or mammon. Satan is not the polar opposite of God. Satan is not on the the ranking with God. Hot and cold are ranked together. They are polar opposites. Light and dark. But God has no contemporary except what we make. Because God made Satan and we made money. So it's his creation against our creation. Are you still with me now? So in the last days, people will love money. I've never seen a day when people love money. And I'm not talking about wealthy people loving money. I'm talking about everybody loving money. I've seen as many poor people loving money and greedy as I've seen wealthy people love money and greedy. Yes. Pride. Everyone say pride. The human attribute that separates man from God. There were so many verses, I just didn't even put down one. Pride removes us from God. It takes us out of the realm of God. It removes us from the throne room of God. Boastful. Number four, boastful. That's to declare oneself to others. It's a self-declaration. It's boastful to self-declarize. To tell everyone who you are, what you have done. It's the accomplishment. It's the, it's the massive award shows that we give to one another. It's, it's, it's the awards, not to one another, to ourselves. It's, it's the idea of, of self-adoration. Boastful. This is the last days. Number five, scoffing. They'll scoff at God. It's the Tower of Babel replayed over and over again. We can do what we want to do because we have the knowledge. We can, we can grow. We have the knowledge. This is the end time when we decide we don't need God. What was, what was the prayer, the example prayer of the Lord? Give us this day our daily bread. We don't have to pray that anymore. No one prays for food like they used to. We don't, we're not praying for it. We're not seeking God for our daily needs. Even church members have removed morning and daily devotions. Every morning when I get up, I have my Bible. It's open. I have a notebook. I'm, I'm reading the scripture and I'm writing it down. I'm reading a scripture and I'm writing something down. Sometimes I get sidetracked and I type a bunch of stuff and then I have to catch up with my reading later. And sometimes I've got to wade through scriptures I'm not really fond of. Come on now, really, Numbers has a lot of names in it. and There's other Leviticus stuff. It's got a lot of names and all the tribes. I'm trying to, I'm trying to read them down. Sometimes I auction them off while I'm reading. Ah, oh, give me, give me, give me, give me, okay. I don't know who all those guys were, but I got all the tribes, the numbers of people, but I want to read through the scripture. I've got to read it. It's got, it's got to be in it. Thank God I got a one-year Bible. So if I'm in some of those tribes, at least I get to go over to the New Testament and read something I halfway understand. There's a psalm and a proverb in there every morning. What happened to that? I'll tell you why we're carnal, because we forgot that God's coming back. We're not living like the Lord's coming back. We're not reading our Bible. We're not preparing ourselves. I'll tell you why the church struggles with attendance and giving and offering and forgiveness and kindness and immorality and all these things. We're not in the word, and we don't believe God's coming back for a bride that's spotless. But if you ever think, if you ever get this in your mind, he's coming back for a spotless bride, you'll stop asking what's wrong with that. You'll stop asking the question, is it a heaven or hell issue? You got to stop asking those questions. If you ever get down to the heaven or hell issue question, you've just sunk to the lowest level of debate. If you, get, if you ever get down to saying, well, I don't know if I should do it or not. Is that going to send me to hell? Is that going to send me to hell? Man, I'll, I don't want to keep asking if something's going to send me to hell. I want to ask is something going to bring me to heaven. I want to be like the Lord. I'm not just trying to escape damnation. I'm trying to attain everlasting life. I've said this many times before. Go ahead and try that with your spouse. Go to your husband and say, hey, you know, you're going to divorce me if I do that? I'm going to go buy some stuff. You're going to divorce me if I do that. I'll put a, st- I'll put a lot of stuff on the credit card. You're going to divorce me then? I'm going to stay out late with my girlfriends on Saturday. You're going to divorce? Man, you keep saying that, it will be over. It's already over. There's no relationship. My relationship with God means more than anything in this world. Your relationship with God means more than anything in this world. What happened to making your calling and election sure? That's why we are attending church. That's why we're studying the Bible. Because we want to make sure we're right with God. Not with men, but with God. We have to get into the word. And if the only time you ever hear the word is when I'm, is when I'm preaching it or teaching it or reading it, you are anemic. And I challenge all of you to eat food only on the days that you read the Bible. And if you'll accept that challenge, please raise your right hand. Scouts, honor, up like this. See? Nobody wants to do it. Oh, only eat food on the days you read the scripture. If you don't read, don't eat. No Bible, no food. Just go home and just say it. You'll save a lot of money on groceries, I promise you. You don't need to go on a weight loss program. What are you talking about? Stop, stop taking those pills. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why it's so important. We, we kind of, I know it's a little bit of a joke, but, but, but our spiritual walk is anemic. We're dying inside. Can you imagine that, that you would eat, you, you would eat actually food, sustenance, once or twice a week? You wouldn't be in good health. Your body would break down. You'd have no nutrients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. It didn't go over well, but you know what? I've had fun saying it. I'm not even sure where I'm at. I lost, I got so excited about that one point. I've lost, oh, scoffing at God. Oh, number six. Hey, there you go. Do you, can you imagine that disobedient to parents is actually notable so, so much that Paul will write it. You see, this is a rejection of the commandments. Children be disobedient. I would, I would ask all the parents, um, Who's in control of your house? Who controls your house? My mother spoke on a Mother's Day about four years, three or four years ago. And that was part of her speech. Who's in control? Right now, we, we, have a, we have an entire generation of young people that love to manipulate and they're in control of their mom and dad. There have been people who have left the church, not because they wanted to, but because their kids said they wanted to go somewhere. One girl told her mom and dad that she wanted to move out of the country and they did so. It caused a lot of havoc. They're in big trouble right now. There's nothing I can do for them. The disobedient parents, instead of parents being parents, parents have become friends. They're Facebook friends. They're negotiators. They're compromisers. As I've told you many times, my children don't need me to be their friend. They need me to be their father. Now, I can be friendly. That doesn't mean I'm angry. But, but you, I hope you understand the context. And that they're disobedient to parents. And this is one of the core commandments of the Ten Commandments. Not only that, but Paul said, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Another portion of scripture, Obey your parents, that your days may be long on the earth. That could be a hint that if you didn't in those days... They could make it so your days weren 't long. number seven, nothing is sacred, the defilement of holy things and living unholy lives i 'm not a proponent or, a, or a, an apologist, nor do I do ap, uh, apologetics for the Catholic Church, but I did find it kind of odd, striking that at one of the of the famous um, uh, galas for for the, um, uh, for the Hollywood actors. This last year, they all dressed up in scantily clothed garments that resembled Catholic priests, popes, bishops, and cardinals, and women and men. It was a it was a full display of a gaudy attire and mocking, very much mocking the attire of Catholic Church of the Catholic Church. And I've been in several Catholic churches and other churches before, and though those are not my uh, my preferences of worship, obviously. I don't want to desecrate or disrespect that. In fact, I, I respect the people that worship there or make that their home. Because I just think that, that, that once I start tearing down those levels uh, of respect, that it'll eventually come to the place where I think there should re- be respect. And, and th- no, this is not one of those church meeting times, but it's nice when parents, uh, parents uh, kind of guide their children uh, Uh, with respecting the house. It's, It's good. But I also think there's other ways for us to respect the sacred things of God. Some things are sacred. Taking communion is a sacred thing. We shouldn't take it lightly. It's not a flippant thing. It should be purposeful. In fact, every time we take communion, we ought to make sure that we are prepared and prayed and and ready to do that and and have our hearts cleaned and have a time of repentance before we do it. These are sacred things. But in those days or in the final days, perilous times, nothing will be sacred. In fact, no one will want to live holy. They're they're going to want to live unholy, carnal. Number eight, no self-control. Anger, wrath displayed in violence. We're seeing massive amount of violence today. Pockets of violence, cells of violence. Number nine, hating what is good. The redefining the terms of what's right and wrong. Let's just stay right there on hating what is good. Because before I do that little last part of, of hating what is good, I want to tell you, even right now today, as if it's an atrocity to be against abortion, which I've made it very clear what the Bible says about abortion, it seems like if you are against abortion, that, you're, that you actually are doing something horrible, that you would take a stand against abortion. We don't even know how many scientists, doctors, inventors, scholars, writers, people that could have created mechanisms for transportation, cancer research specialists, People who have cured all kinds of diseases have been killed in abortion. The 50 million babies in America that have been slaughtered through abortion. And I would would not be stretching it to say maybe a few hundred million other children throughout the world aborted. Especially that in China, seeing that they could only have one child for many, many decades. And they would all prefer a boy. So they aborted every girl. Of course, the crisis now is that there's 40 million male Chinese men without counterparts of the opposite sex. No one had girls. You think about this. What church now is standing up against abortion? I won't make mention of the, of the gentleman, but he was a minister. He approached me about my stance on abortion and he vehemently opposed it because he felt like that government needed to help people after they were living. And so he didn't mind siding with abortionists because they were into social mechanisms for other people. It just doesn't stand a reason. It's an illogical argument. If you're, if you're in law school, you'll, you'll take logic. And this is an illogical argument. If A equals B... And B equals C, then A must equal C. That's an illogical argument. It's a deference of argumentation. I don't want to go down through that, although I just did. You you, you don't negate the scripture because someone else is doing something wrong and they believe portions of what you believe. You don't throw away all of the right things for the sake of a few wrong things. And David said, you knew me in my mother's womb, even before my substance had come together. You knew me, you created me, you saw me. And it used to be that all Christian denominations believed it, even in the Catholic Church. Even Mother Teresa and all the popes, up to this particular pope, who's not made as strong of declaration. And all the Christian churches used to believe that. And in fact, if we believe that, even right now today... Good would not be called evil, and evil would not be called good, but it is being called good, and evils called evil is being called good, and good is being called evil because we 've left the Bible and the attributes of the Bible. My care for people while they 're living does not does not mean that I, that I cannot have have a feeling about someone who is not yet born the unborn, and now even science is starting to rise up and say there 's cognitive there 's emotions. And there is the feeling of pain and sensations in the second and uh, the third semester of, of, of of the pregnancy. Can you imagine this? We have almost no studies today, no YouTube videos today, of mothers who've dealt with depression after abortion. And we deal with the people who've had abortion in the church. And I want to tell you, if you've had an abortion in the church, God will heal you and restore you. And you ought not tell anybody what happened. God will help you. But just let me, for a moment, preach against it because I don't want our kids to have it. See, this is the binding up of my life. This is what's binding me up. I I stand here and preach against against sexual perversions and against babies out of wedlock. Well, what are you going to do, pastor, if we have someone who has a baby out of wedlock? We're going to love the mother and the child. We don't agree with what happened, but we're still going to love them. But can I still preach against having sex out of marriage, out of the wedding? Can I still preach against abortion? Can I still preach against sin? Will you, will you allow me to preach against what's wrong? Even if it affects your life or your family. Come on. I'm not against anybody. You got to know I love them. And if you ever even knew what the old timers used to be, I'm a spoonful of sugar, man. You don't even know what those old timers did. People would stand up in the audience and confess their sins to everybody. And then they'd sit back down. That's the only way you got to stay in the church. I'm not much into that. My God, I'm not even on Facebook. I don't even want to know. Just keep it to yourself. I'm trying to get you to keep it to yourself. for crying out loud. I'm, I'm kind of thinking we got to get back to being pure and right and holy. Come on, if you're ever convicted, let the Lord do the work of conviction. I don't really know what's going on in your life, but sometimes I'm standing, I'm preaching. It's not because I'm speaking, but it's the Lord. You're seeing me. You're seeing a limited form of clay. I'm a finite human being with a corruptible mind and a flesh that's decaying. But it could be the voice of the Almighty God speaking through a vessel just to get down into your life to make you ready for the rapture. He wants to make you ready for the catching away of the bride. Here, pastor, tonight, we got to be ready. we got to be holy. we got to be pure. You don't want to be here when we go. That's right. Something about that even this very day when I'm when I'm watching and I wanna I wanna get back and preach a little bit of starry decisis. I wanna preach a little bit of starry decisis. I gotta get back to the original. Oh man. I'm stirred up. Even this very day I'm watching this. I'm thinking, what's wrong with our government? What happened? Now we're giving accolades to Bruce Jenner. He's, he's the courageous one. I thought the guys who stormed Normandy and lost their lives and legs and limbs and left their bodies behind, I thought they were courageous. I didn't know a man. I got uh, This is adult class. I'm sorry if this offends you. But I didn't know a man that puts on high heels and sews on some apparatus and makes him look like a woman grows his hair long. I didn't know he was courageous. I'm going to tell you what that is. That's perversion. I don't have time to get into it tonight, but that's perversion. And if, and if the Christian community was really the Christian community, we wouldn't have any of this kind of stuff today. Churches ought to be taking care of the poor and taking care of the needy and helping people out. But the churches negated that and they gave their responsibility over to the government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, church used to be the center of town until we put the courthouse there. And then we leaned on the courthouse for everything. Instead of having godly judgment and godly wisdom, we decided we'd hire somebody to be the godly wisdom. I'm going to tell you about the prophets. The prophets were the seers. They were the statesmen. They were the overseers. They were the judges. They were the voice of God. we got to get back to the voice of God here, pastor, tonight. Perilous times are here. You're living in a dangerous time. you got to get in the church. You've got to get in the house. you got to get in the Lord. you got to get in the truth. Amen. I know people want me to make statements about the politics of the politicians today. I want to tell you right now, I don't put my trust and faith in any of them. I don't believe in any of them. They're not my savior. They're not my God. They are, they are instruments for a period of time. I'm not trusting and, and I pray for all of them. I don't care what side of the aisle up or down they are. I pray for all of them because they need the Lord. They need to repent of their sins. They need to be baptized in Jesus' name. And the motif and the image of Moses that hangs in that great hall where the speaker looks up and sees the back of Moses. I'm going to tell you what Moses was preaching. He was preaching. He was speaking. He was baptizing people in the wilderness and went to the Red Sea. They better get back to the book. It's described everywhere. Isaiah and the writings of the Bible and the Beatitudes are all over Washington. But they forgot what they inscribed in marble decades ago. All right. Got a little excited there at the end. Let's finish it out so we can go home and feel good. Definitions change. That's right. Definitions have changed. Woe unto them. Number 10, betrayal. There's a betrayal of brothers. Let me just tell you about the church. Let me tell you about this church. Don't ever betray your brother here. Love one another. Don't talk bad about one another. You're the family of God. Embrace everybody you can. Hug them. Love them. Treat them like, like they are and what they are. Your own blood. Everybody said amen. amen. Number eleven, reckless. I, I look. If, if you get to King Ahaz, you'll see that he hired and promoted reckless men. And there's a couple of attributes of reckless men: carelessness, hasty, thoughtless, reckless men. The carelessness of this life. This is what's happening. People are reckless. Number 12, they're act, people acting religious. These are church people. They, they espouse some outward show. They have a cross hanging around their neck or on their lapel. Or, or maybe they have a WWJD wristband. Mm-hmm. They're acting religious, but they're not religious. Hear me, dear saints of God. Something's going to come out of you. It's going to defile you. You have to be careful what comes out of your mouth. I don't want you to put on a religious show. Be true to who you are. It's incredible. The Muslims are true to who they are. Why aren't the Pentecostals true? Why aren't the Christian community? Why isn't it true? Don't just act religious. Be religious. You are religious. If people call you sanctimonious or holier than thou, that's fine. Bow your head at the restaurant. Say a word of prayer. You don't have to use King James English. Yell real loud. Have to cry out. But those who mourn in Zion, just say thank God for green beans, for my waitress. Pray for the food. Maybe it'll get better. We're not. We're not. We're not religious. We're just acting. Without authority, everyone say without authority. This is, a, this is a dangerous thing, a generation void of honor and respect. People who answer to no one without authority. I ask you, who's the authority in your life? Does anyone have the veto power in your life? Who can say no and you say, that's good with me? We've lost that. Our churches have lost it. The Pentecostals used to have that. They've lost that. Some of that was because they had corrupt leadership with authoritarians and dictators that worked for their own use. Some of that is because people became carnal. Yes. It was two sides of that, that coin. The pulpit destroyed itself and the people did, did the same. So now authority is void. I will tell you right now, in my administration, all the years that i pastored, which is now close, to, it's, it's 19 years next month. I don't use the term will of God to describe something you should do. Unless it is the will of God. So many people have asked me, do you think this is the will of God? I'm very careful. I can tell you what the will of God is, is love your brother. I can tell you a lot of Bible will of gods, But when you get down to the specific will of God, whether or not you should buy a snapper or a John Deere. I've had that question before. Everybody knows a John Deere, you not buy a snapper. It was an easy one. <laughs> All right, well, once again, it's a hard crowd. <laughs> I won't leave my day job. The reason why I went down to verse 13 is because we've got this, we've got this, so this is a very difficult thing for us to decipher. I kind of joked around many, for many years that the vote was over, I'm the pastor, the vote's over. But I found out the Lord spoke to me. No one spoke to me, but the Lord spoke to me. And he just kind of poked me, you know. You all know, you guys know how you're doing something, your wife pokes you in the rib. Anybody? Don't do that. Little pinch. They gave you the eye glare. Eyebrow was raised. No one? Come on, man, don't, don't lie. You're in the church. You're, uh, thank you. One, one in the back. Thanks, Mike. People vote every day, every Sunday people are voting on me because they vote with their feet. They vote with their, with their attendance and their worship on me every Sunday. I don't have an election every year. I have, I have an election every Sunday, every Wednesday. There's an election here. That's right. Now I I don't, I don't, don't, I'm not kowtowing. I'm not, I'm trying to change to be better, but I'm not, I'm not living under the cloud of. But you do have to carefully concern yourself. Carefully measure. The false doctrine. The false preacher. You have to be very careful of that. Because it's not good enough for me. To be a preacher and a teacher. And faithful to the word. If I'm unfaithful to my wife. No, mm. Nor is it wise of me. To be faithful to my wife and unfaithful to the word. Or a false teacher could actually not be preaching the truth for fear that he might lose some tithe-paying members. Yeah. Well, that's happened many times where preachers actually change their message because they want to hold the money. They're afraid of money. I wanted to tell you right now, I ain't afraid of you holding your money. I'm just afraid of what's going to happen to you if you do. You didn't, you didn't buy me. I'm, I'm not a hireling. I'm gonna tell you right now, I'll go back to painting houses and Tammy will sell them before I ever bow, bow to anyone's wishes because they're, they, they're gonna leave. And I've had people tell me, when I leave, this is how much money I'm taking with me because I won't be paying tithes. I'm gonna tell you right now, your money will burn with you. The last thing you want is a false preacher who looks at you through the eyes of your wallet. And you're 401 ks and you better be given and sacrificed if we're ever going to build something. We better all be opening it up. Come on, lay up. Lay, lay down your W-2s. we got to get busy here. I want lock deposit boxes. I want all the heirlooms and all the gold coins. you got tucked underneath your mattress. We've got a sanctuary built. That's partially true. We're coming. Look, but we, l- listen, it can't, it, you got to be, you got to be, watch, watch this. It, it's, we got to measure the teachers and the preachers. I'm measured every day. Before you latch on in a spouse to some televised or television evangelist or someone who's writing a book, you better be very careful because they can slip into that message and that book and that doctrine false teachings and false concepts that will mislead you in the last days. Dangerous times are going to come, Jesus said. they are perilous times and men and women will teach false doctrines and I end with this word tonight. It will be deception. And the last thing you want is to give your life to a preacher or a teacher who is, who is deceptive and you, and you die because you have been deceived by something that's untrue. That's right. Amen. Everybody say amen.